throughout of the message. Um, to introduce this passage this morning, uh, I want us to think a little bit uh, back to your English grammar days, uh, English classes perhaps in high school or college, and uh, one of the things that we're taught when we're writing something is that uh, you need to have uh, a captivating uh, introductory statement, a sentence. And the purpose of this introductory statement is to uh, capture your audience, is to captivate you, uh, is to get you excited about what's to come. It's also uh, to give you a a sneak preview of what the rest of the story or the rest of the the essay is going to be about. So it has two purposes. So we see that not only essays and speeches, uh, but even in movies and, and books and novels, Uh, So for a lot of these uh, introductory uh, sentences, it gives us a desire to have to want more information. So for example, uh, the novel The Prince's Bride, uh, some of you have read it, uh, by William Goldman, the introductory sentence is, this is my favorite book in all the world, though I have never read it. Uh, Doesn't it make you want to read what the rest of this story is? The next one, I'll read you the quote, see if you can guess uh, which novel this one is from. All children, except one, grow up. Peter Pan by J.M. Barry. Doesn't it make you want to read more about who this one child that doesn't grow up is all about, right? So not only does it captivate your interest, the introductory sentence also gives you a, a preview of what the rest of the story is going to be about. It's a thematic statement. I'll give you another one. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom and the age of foolishness, the season of light, the season of darkness, the spring of hope, the winter of despair. This is from Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. And this introduces the two extremes that he's going to lay out for us uh, during the French Revolution, the powerful, the powerless, the wealthy, and the poor. I'll give you one last one, see if you can get uh, what this is from. It is a truth universally universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and prejudice. The story is going to be about how these rich suitors will be choosing for themselves these young uh, women for their wives. So we can see what these introductory statements do. It gives you uh, this sneak preview of what's to come. It's a thematic sentence. And so, likewise, in our passage this morning, these first two verses, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, it serves as this introductory thematic sentence for the rest of this epistle. It introduces the theme of what's to come next. So as one commentator says, it is the paradigm for the following chapters. So taking the lead of what Paul is saying here, we have to see that the rest of these chapters from here on out, as we finish out our series in Romans, we're going to see how Christians are supposed to live. It's going to be very practical, very ethical, very concrete, and this is what a Christian does, how he lives after We've received the gospel of grace, the grace that we've seen all the way through chapters 1 through 11. So let's consider these two verses as the thematic introduction of all that's to come in the coming weeks. So for today, uh, we have two headings. Number one, uh, we are to, be my, uh, to have the mindset of God's mercies. 
We need to have a mindset of God's mercies. And number two, uh, we need to have a mindset of wholehearted devotion. God's mercies and wholehearted devotion. And afterwards, I want to just give us one application. So with that in mind, let's ask the Lord for his help one more time as we look into his word. Heavenly Father, we do pray that your Holy Spirit, uh, that he may come, convict us of our sins. Uh, May he persuade us of our need for Christ. Help us to embrace you as our Lord and Savior, and that the Spirit may transform us from the inside out. Lord, we want all of these things, for you have promised that in your word that you speak. Lord, we need your voice this morning, for without it, we are of all men to be pitied, for we have no hope. So Lord, give us hope this morning. Only in Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, so with the thought of looking at these verses, at this thematic introductory paradigm for the rest of Romans, let's look at these two verses again. Look at it in this light. So Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what's the command here? Uh, We are to present our bodies as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God. That's going to be your spiritual worship from here on out. And so before we go on to see all these practical instructions that Paul gives us, there's something very important that we must keep in mind. So we're going to camp out here because we are not to take these, uh, these commands that we're going to see, all the commands from chapters 12 through 14, apart from chapters 1 through 11. It does not mean that this gospel that we've been studying all of these weeks, that that's just in chapters 1 through 11. Now in chapter 12, we're just going to go into the practicals, and we're just going to leave the gospel back there. We are not to bifurcate the gospel of grace and the way we are to live, but rather the gospel is to be underneath our practical living. And we know this because Paul, he's very much drawing our attention to the context of these instructions. The context of the gospel of grace from chapters 1 through 11. He's saying, keep this gospel of grace, God's justification, his election, his sovereignty, his love for you. Keep all that in mind as you do these things. Keep the preceding gospel context in mind. And we know context is very important, isn't it? For example, this week, earlier this week, on Sunday, there was a baseball game at Wrigley Field in Chicago when in right field there was a dead ball and the first base coach picked up the ball and he tossed it into the stands to give it to this cute, adorable boy. And you can see, but this boy is devastated as the man behind him snatches the ball away from him and you can see just how evil this man looks. 
compared to the boy who just looks disgruntled and devastated. So that following day, this man was the most hated man of all America. Anywhere from CNN to the news to the sports network to all the social media, this man was villainized. Can you imagine what his life must have been for that day? Now, shortly after, more news report comes that this man is actually not evil. Because what happened is that the ball that he snatched was actually the second baseball that came his way. And the first baseball, he actually gave it to this little kid. And the second ball that he supposedly snatched gave it to his wife who took a picture and then afterwards gave it to another kid behind him. And so for all this time, this man was ostracized, he was hated, all because the camera crew got 10 seconds of this clip of him snatching this ball away from this kid. But by the time we found out, it was already too late. People started hating him. Even the Chicago Cubs team, they gathered together and they got a signed ball by all-star Javier Baez and gave him, this little boy, an extra ball. So you can see at the end of the game, he walked away with two baseballs and the man, he had none. So at first I thought this cute boy, I felt so bad for him, but now I'm thinking, what a malicious evil boy who is probably in his room with this evil grin thinking, suckers, I got two balls. Context is everything, especially the preceding context. So when we take that into our passage, what's the context? Imagine if I said, we're going to start our series on Romans, and the first thing that you read in Romans chapter 1 is what we see here. To offer yourselves as holy, living, acceptable sacrifices to God. That is your spiritual worship. And therefore, you will receive this salvation. Imagine if that was Christianity. It would be a shamble. It would look like every other religion in the world that says, present yourself in some kind of manner or do something or be acceptable, be holy, and then approach the throne of God and then receive his favor. That's what it would look like if we disregard chapters 1 through 11. But rather, we are to take chapter 12 onward in light of the grace that we've seen all along. It must be anchored in this gospel of grace. As one commentator says, he's not saying do these things in order to live in God's grace, but in God's grace, live, and you will do this thing. Live in God's grace, and you will see your life do these things that Paul is going to write from here on out. Where am I getting this from the text? Look with me in your verses. Number one, do you see that word, therefore? Therefore. There's a catchy phrase that I picked up along the way, and it says, if you see the word, therefore, see what it's there for. And perhaps that will help you remember as you read Scripture, when you see that word, what's coming before it? And when Paul writes, therefore, he's saying, all of these things that I've been writing about, 
This is the natural result, the natural implication of this gospel of grace. So all of these commands are supposed to be anchored in God's love, his grace, his election, his love for you. In other words, the imperatives of what he's going to write is to be anchored in the indicatives of what God has done by sovereignly choosing you and calling you to be his child, calling you to listen and hear and to understand and accept this gospel of grace, that drives and motivates this imperative. That's the first clue. The second clue, if you look with me, not only does he write, therefore, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God, present your bodies. And it is that phrase, by the mercies of God, that tells us we need to anchor these commands with God's mercies that we've read previously from chapters 1 through 11. I like the way that the NIV translates it. It says, not by the mercies of God, but in view of God's mercies. In view of God's mercies that he's been writing about from 1 through 11, Romans chapter 3, we are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 2, we have peace with God in our reconciliation through Christ. 5, 15, we have the gift of righteousness and eternal life. For if many die through one man's trespasses, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Romans 6, we are united with Christ. So we will have a resurrection like his where death has no dominion over us. So Paul writes, consider yourself dead to sin, alive in Christ. We just read Romans 8, no more condemnation. You have the spirit of adoption by whom we can call God of the universe, Abba, Father. We have the everlasting love of God for he did not spare his own son but gave him, gave him up for us all. How much more will he graciously give us all things? We are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. Let all of these things anchor these imperatives. So to sum it up, he's saying, in light of these things, therefore, go live this way by presenting your bodies as living, holy, and acceptable sacrifices. That's the gospel. We tend to think that the gospel is just grace. And although it begins with it, we tend to put grace and the gospel behind us and now start to think that our living is now due to our works and our strength and our ability. And it is not that grace that empowers us. We tend to separate grace. We want to keep grace back in chapters 1 through 11. But Paul's saying, let that grace start to immerse in your practical lives. That's what the gospel of grace is about. If you remember that story from Les Mis, that one powerful scene where Jean Valjean gets caught stealing all the silverware from the bishop and the constable brings him back. And don't we all agree that's a picture of this radical grace that God's given us when the bishop says, I gave him these silverware. I gave him these things. And so we see that the bishop pardons Jean Valjean. And we all agree that's an example of this radical, undeserved grace. But it doesn't end there. Because if you remember, after that, 
the bishop, he embraces Jean Valjean and he whispers into his ear. Remember what he says? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you and I am taking it away from evil thoughts, from the spirit of perdition, and I'm giving it to God. Do you see, the grace of the gospel is underneath, in and through that statement. And the gospel continues to motivate and empower this living, this Christian living. And it must be anchored where we must constantly go back to this gospel of grace described in chapters 1 through 11. That's how we're going to live lives that are good and acceptable and perfect. We must consciously make these grace-anchored connections to as many concrete acts of obedience as we can. Let me explain. Say that you're in an argument. You're fighting with somebody, and then you're trying to pull up as much rhetorical ammunition as you can to beat the other person but perhaps you think you know what i don't want to do that it's not the right thing to do and you try to be patient and you try to hold your tongue how far does that get you but having a grace anchor motivation in that moment you stop and you think Jesus has every right to throw every argument, every ammo against me, but he was led to the slaughter and he did not open his mouth. That's what Jesus did for me when he had every right to point out my wrongs and my flaws. Let your mind wrap around that and then you say, I'm sorry I hurt you. When you have nothing left, no energy to, to open this Bible, everything inside of you just wants to fight against getting on your knees and praying. Or come Friday or Saturday, there's just so many things going on and you just want to put community group or, or accountability group to the side. Don't just kick yourself and say, you know, I, this is something I have to do. This is something that I just have to do. The Bible says so. And you just try really hard to do it. It's not going to work. It doesn't work. But in that moment, you stop and you think, Jesus, when he was at his weakest, carrying that cross, where physically he couldn't even stand when Jesus was at his weakest on that cross, suffocating for air and time and time again as he's grasping for signs of life, Hebrews 12 says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, the joy that he had knowing that at the end of that, he's going to have you. Let your mind wrap around that. And you open your Bible and you read. You open your Bible and you pray. Let your mind wrap around that and you go to your community group and say, how can I pray for you? Learn to live like this. Live life like this. Let the grace of the gospel empower everything that you do, whether it be at work or at home or at school. Learn to live out God's commands in view of God's mercies and experience the gospel imperatives together.
Do not leave the gospel behind us. Amen. Second point, mindset of a wholehearted devotion. So uh, we covered about the first half of verse 1. We have about seven and a half more verses to go. So bear with me. We're going to continue on what Paul is writing here. He says that when we offer our bodies, he uses three adjectives. They are living, holy, and acceptable. Acceptable to God. And now when he's saying bodies, he's not saying just physical. He's not just saying, give me your physical labor and manual labor. He's using bodies as a metaphor. It means the whole self. If I said something like, uh, I need three bodies to help me move furniture today. I want your whole self to come. So give all that you have to God. And now this statement was very radical during Paul's time. Because for Rome and for the Jews and for every other culture at that time, the way that you sacrificed was you killed the animal at the altar, right? They were burned. They were completed by eating its meat. There were priests there who had to mediate and prepare the sacrifices. So one scholar, he says that the earliest Christians, they must have stood out as strangely distinctive in the way they offered their sacrifices. Why? Because they offered themselves. And they were able to because they are now holy. They are now acceptable to God. And they are alive because of Christ. And this is radical because it meant it's not just on Sunday. It's not just for that allotted period of time where you prepare your sacrifice and you give it to God and then you go back home. What's radical about it is it entails every single aspect of your life, everything about you from Monday through Monday again. And it was radical. It was not tied to the temple. You were to worship wherever you went. It was not tied to one person. You had direct access to worship God in the way that you concretely live out these gospel graces. This was radical. And humanly speaking, it is impossible, isn't it? It's harder to be a living sacrifice than a dead one, isn't it? I remember one pastor used to say, a living sacrifice is harder because a live one ends up crawling off the altar, but a dead one stays there. And that's what our spiritual lives feels like. Because we're alive, we are prone to wander and prone to leave the God that we love. Because to live holy, acceptable sacrifices to God, it means that very thing to give everything that you have to the Lord. It means a complete renewal, a complete transformation of everything. And I'm not overstating it here. It means wholehearted devotion. How are we to do that? Well, Paul writes in verse 2, he gives two things, a negative instruction and a positive one. The negative is, do not be conformed into this world. Do not be conformed to this world. The positive, be transformed by the renewal of the mind. And this gets at the idea that the world, that the things that you hear and you see from your day to day, the things that you watch on TV and social media, the things that you hear from culture that tells you where you need to go to find your comfort, where you need to spend your money, your time, and your energy. He's saying it's all putting this pressure on you. 
from the outside in, and it's trying to mold you into its, one of its products. Another Bible translate, the Phillips translation, it writes, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And that's the negative command. And that's not all of it. Look with me at the end of verse 1. And as a side note, and I urge you guys to, to look at your Bibles because the authority is not coming from me. These are not my thoughts, Lord willing. I'm seeing this in these passages, and I pray that our church learns to see it for yourself. That's where the power of God's word comes, not from me. Look at the end of verse 1. After that word worship, you should see a footnote. And that footnote should say your rational service. If you see Your rational service. Other translations have reasonable service, which is the same idea. So not only is it spiritual, but it's a rational, reasonable service because the Greek word behind this connotes both meanings. It's spiritual and rational. And what this tells us is that our living, our holy, acceptable sacrifice is not this mindless, spiritual act. It is thoughtful. It is reasoned out. It makes sense. So it is therefore to be understood as this true, genuine, wholehearted worship that involves every part of us, everything from the mind to the heart to our actions to our wills. And that makes sense considering what God has done for you in 1 through 11. Our life-giving sacrifice to God is reasonable. And the rational thing to do in light of these mercies is to give all of your life to God. That's the most spiritual and most reasonable thing to do in response to God's grace. You can't separate it. You can't separate this spiritual life, spiritual worship from your well-thought-out way of living. You know, these days, I don't really listen to anything while I'm driving and my wife said, it's pretty early to enjoy silence. You're only in your mid-30s. But I used to listen to praise music, uh, the radio, sports radios all the time. But nowadays, uh, just nothing. And I think one of the reasons why, and I'm sharing and I'm confessing a sin, I remember a long time ago I used to drive and play praise music and sing with it. And one time there was a car that cut me off. And I said, what are you doing? And both our windows were open, so... Because I'm passive-aggressive, I didn't do it in English, so he didn't understand me. But I said, what are you doing? The few seconds after that, I literally was singing, shout to the Lord while the earth let us sing. And after a few seconds of thinking, I said, you know what, something's not right here. Something doesn't reconcile. Where I can just be unchristian as I want in the way that I treated this car and then go to this spiritual worship at the drop of a dime. That's what Paul's preaching against. Don't do that in your life. If you profess and claim and, and claim these gospel promises, this gospel of grace that God chose you out of all these people to hear this gospel because of his love for you, giving you the English Bible in your hands, opening your heart to see the depths of your miseries, of your sins, to see the heights of God's love for you. If he did that for you, then be reasonable and rational and live like that really happened to you. It doesn't make sense for to claim this gospel, but to go live according to this world. It does not reconcile. 
if you look at the end of the word world, you'll see another footnote. And it's not only just the world, but it says age. Do not be conformed to this age. And it gets at both meanings because world means everything outside of these walls, right? The things you hear, the things that you see, the culture that we live in. But age, there's a, a temporal aspect to it. There's a time, meaning don't live the way that you used to live before the gospel. Don't live according to this age, the, the age where you were in darkness. As Ephesians chapter 2 says, you were dead in the trespasses of your sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of this air. By nature, you are objects of God's wrath. Don't go back to that. Don't live your life as if you're still holding on to your, your previous way of life. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't be conformed to this age. Don't go back to that lifestyle. And I wonder, I genuinely wonder for our church, for example, let's say that I take two things out of your life. Two things. One, I take out your Sundays. I take out your Sunday church attendance. And the second thing I take out is you praying before a meal. If I took those two things out and someone observed the way that you lived, can they get glimpses of the gospel? Can they see a gospel-transformed life? And I genuinely wonder, take those two things out. How much can people see there's Christ in this brother, in this sister? Do we go back to the way that we used to live after claiming these gospel promises to ourselves? John Murray says, if all your calculations, your plans, your ambitions, the things that get you excited are determined by what falls within this life here, consider yourself a child of this age. If you see yourself getting emotional over a Netflix episode over the things of God, consider yourself a child of this age. If you're more concerned about going to this show or to this concert or seeing and catching up with friends rather than the things of God, consider yourself a child of this age. That's what he's saying. Don't go back. Do you see the divided worship that Paul is warning against? That's not reasonable. If everything from chapters 1 through 11 is true for you, that though you were dead, following the course of this world, and God, through Christ, transformed you from the realm of darkness into the realm of light, gave you the resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the same Spirit that's going to give you your glorified bodies in the kingdom of heaven. If God, through His Spirit, changed your palate, to be able to taste just how sweet and delicious the kingdom of God is. Where he gave you the Holy Spirit when, when God's name is blasphemed, when his honor is compromised, when there are souls dying every day apart from this gospel, and you get more emotional over a show, something's not right, he's saying. Logically, you have to go back to the premise have you tasted Christ? Do not go back to the world. There are many people before us who lived before us, who lived this kind of radical, transformed life. There was once an elderly Christian woman 
she was giving her testimony to a group of people. And it was just amazing. Just all the things that God was doing in her life. Just countless stories, one after the next. And after that, uh, this younger Christian woman came up to her and she said, wow, I would give the world to have your experiences. I'd give the world. And you know what that elderly Christian woman said? She says, my dear, that's exactly what it costs. That's exactly what it costs. Do you want to be able to say, I tasted something so great, so glorious, so fulfilling, that I count all things as rubbish, as Paul says in Philippians 3. And if you do, it requires this wholehearted devotion where you let go. Let go of this world. Let go of your previous life. And like a treasure hidden in the field, you sell everything that you have in order to obtain that treasure. But we'll only want to sell everything we have if we sincerely believe that Christ is far superior than anything else. You need to sincerely believe that. Genuinely believe that Christ is better than this. Only that can motivate you to live accordingly. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus. Have you ever made that kind of commitment to God? Lord, I give you my life. Give you my all. Whatever you want, it's yours. I wonder what kind of life you will have the minute you give that kind of worship to God. And I am excited to see what kind of life God has in store for you if you give it all to the Lord. It's going to cost the world. Now, I came across this little reading this week, and it personally convicted me a lot. And I pray that it doesn't put us to guilt or shame, but out of it that we repent together. We confess our sins together as a church, but let me read it for you. I don't know who wrote it, but I came across this, this excerpt. It's entitled, What Disturbs You the Most? What Disturbs You the Most? A soul lost in hell or a scratch on your new car? You missing the worship service or missing a day's work? A sermon 10 minutes too long or lunch a half hour late? A church not growing or your garden not growing? Your Bible unopened or your newspaper unopened? Perhaps Facebook for us. The church work being neglected or your housework being neglected? Missing a good Bible study or missing your favorite football game? The millions who do not know Christ or your inability to keep up with your friends? The cry of the multitude for living bread or your desire for another piece of chocolate cake? Your ties to the church decreasing or your income decreasing? Your children late for Sunday school or your children late for public school? What really disturbs you the most? I pray that we confess together because I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty. 
What are you holding on to this life? We claim to have the bread of life, the living water, in whom we will never thirst for anything else. If we have Christ, then it is unspiritual, it is unreasonable, it is irrational to go back to our age, to go back to this world. Because Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so I appeal to you, brothers, the way that Paul is appealing to you. He writes that word, doesn't he, brothers? Store this in your mind. You know, Paul doesn't use that word, brothers, often. We have an elder in our session. He says, bro, every single time to us. Bro this, bro that. Paul's the opposite of that. When he uses it, he really means it. He's on his knees saying, brothers and sisters, I appeal to you, do not go back. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do for the glory of God. That's what reasonable spiritual worship looks like. Finally, I want to just give one application in light of these verses. We're now going into verse 3. We finished verses 1 and 2. And from here on out, we're now going to see all the specific instructions that Paul's going to give. You can get a glimpse of that. If you look at verse 9, the heading of your Bible should say, marks of a true Christian or, or, or the uh, test of a true Christian, the things that a Christian does. So we're now entering these practical, specific instructions. So next week, Pastor Dan's going to preach from verse 9 onward. But today I want to end with the first instruction that Paul gives in light of these mercies from verse 3 to 8. So if you think, if you were Paul, say that you were the Apostle Paul, you're writing this epistle of the Romans to the Roman church, and you know all of the instructions that you want to give to this new church, these specific instructions for the baby Christian. And you know there are many instructions out there for the Christian life. What would be the first thing you write? If you start writing these practical things that a Christian should keep in mind and do, what would be the first thing on the top of your list? Would it be uh, read your Bibles, pray, learn to share the gospel? As good as and important as all these things are, that's not what Paul writes. What's the first thing that Paul writes in view of these mercies? And this is the application. He says, serve your church. Serve your church. That's the application. That's the top of his list. Serve your local church, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he lists some examples of this gift. All the, all the specific instructions that Paul could have chosen, he starts with, serve your local church with whatever gifts you have. And he qualifies by saying, think soberly. Don't think of yourself highly than you ought to, but with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. There's a lot of things we could say about these verses, but I just want to zoom in on one thing. He says to have sober judgment. Don't think highly of yourself. To think according to the measure of 
faith that God has assigned. If you see that phrase, and in verse 6, he writes something similar. Serve using your gifts according to the grace that's given to us. Now, when we initially think of that word measure, we tend to think it is quantitative, right? A certain amount. So we tend to think, for those whom God gave a lot of faith, serve in a deeper, a more committed, uh, a more productive way. For the new Christian, for the baby Christian, perhaps God gave you a little faith, so serve minimally. That's not what Paul's saying. The way that he's using measure, it's not quantitative, but qualitative, meaning standard of faith. Serve according to the standard of faith that we see in Christ, according to the gospel that we see in Christ. Let me give you an example. Uh, Jesus, in the same book, this Bible, in Matthew 7, Jesus said, For the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. He also says, With the measure you use it, it will be measured onto you. Do you see the way that word is used? It means standard. The standard of faith, meaning that when we think of ourselves, especially in the way that we serve, we're supposed to think and serve according to our relationship with Christ. The object and standard of our faith. And this adheres well with Paul, uh, with what Paul's writing, saying, have a sober judgment of yourselves. So let me bring this down to earth for us. What does this mean? It means when you don't want to give up your time, or your energies, or your resources for the sake of this church, you place that against the standard of the gospel faith that says, though Christ was rich, he became poor for your sake, and by his poverty you might become rich. That standard of faith. And though you are weak, though you do not want to expend, you think of what Christ has done for you, and that standard of faith, and you go. When you feel too weak or inadequate to serve this church, you place that against the standard of the gospel faith where Paul writes, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may reign in me. Do you see? Think soberly according to what Christ has done for you. Because the tendency of the church, when we think about spiritual gifts, when we think about serving, we look inward. What am I gifted in? We like spiritual tests and quizzes and inventories. That's not how the church operated for all this time, except for the past 20 years. You know how people discovered their gifts? They saw a need, and they volunteered, and they gave themselves up for that need. And through that process, they discovered that they were gifted in this. It doesn't look inward first, but outward first. It sees what God wants and needs according to his standard, according to what the church needs. So the thinking is, what am I gifted in versus it's how can I go about learning this gift? How can I serve in this way, this need that I see? Do you know how many acoustic guitar players the church has produced because there was a need 
for someone to play four chords during praise time? I am a product of one of those. But do you see how the mindset is different? What do you need? I'll try. I'll learn. My weakness is God's power and Christ's sufficiency. Help me. Let's do this. That's the standard of faith. What do you see in this church? What do you see where you can serve? Is there a way where you can be a blessing to somebody in your community group? And yes, that involves being relational. And if you think about it, every single spiritual gift in the Bible is relational. It has to do with someone else, blessing someone else, encouraging someone else, teaching someone else. And that implies that you are involved in people's lives. So we live our lives according to that standard of faith. It requires us to look at the way that we see these brothers and sisters. You know, to this day, I remember my father, who's not a Christian, he actually shared with me a very important gospel truth when I was young. I remember it was on vacation. We were by a lake in Korea, and I was just sitting next to him. He took, takes my hand, and he pinches one of my fingers. And I go, ow! And he goes, where did it hurt? My finger. And he says, where did you say ow? My mouth. Did your whole body hurt? Yes. And just using that illustration, he said, that's like me and you. Every time you hurt, I'm going to hurt. That's what the body is. And I still have that memory of this day. But that's what Paul's getting at. Instead of seeing people around you as people you just greet for two minutes on Sunday, are they the people that God has sovereignly placed in your life so that your gifts can be exercised? Are they brothers and sisters that is part of this body? It's going to require that kind of mindset. You know, many of you have been sharing with me, and I'm thankful just how much of a blessing this Roman series has been, where for many of us, we've been rediscovering the gospel, the, the justification by faith alone, God's love and his sovereignty. And I'm glad that our church is, is growing together in knowing these things. But now, in light of these mercies, in light of this gospel of grace, this is what the word of God has for you. Serve your church. It is your body. The brothers and sisters next to you right now are not people you just worship with. They are the sovereignly placed people in your life. 1 Corinthians 12, For God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose yet there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Maybe I'll say that verse to my dad this week. Did you know you shared with me the gospel? Are you thankful for the mercies of God that God has given you in the gospel from chapters 1 through 11? Are you wondering how you can express your praise and your thanks to God? Well, here it is. Serve the members of your church. Use your gifts according to the standard of faith and grace that God has given us in Christ. Let's pray.
as the praise team comes up, perhaps you'll join with me in time of prayer to our Lord. And let's repent together. What disturbs you? Do the things of this world and the things of this age disturb you more than the things of God and his kingdom? And if that's you, join with me and repent and let go and give your wholehearted devotion to God and then see what God is going to do in your life. Let's repent together. Thank you.